新型コロナウイルスの影響で今年の世界経済の成長率がマイナス 5.2% に落ち込むという予測を明らかにしました戦後最悪の景気後退になるということです With the coronavirus pandemic bringing economies around the world to a grinding halt over the summer, Japan suffered its worst economic contraction since the end of World War II. Prior to the pandemic, the Japanese economy had grown for 71 consecutive months. But now, nearly 36,000 Japanese companies have gone out of business due to COVID 19, and consumer prices have seen their biggest drop since the 311 Tohoku triple disaster, ringing alarm bells of deflation on top of recession. While Japan's recovery from the shutdown outpaced expectations due to increased household spending, a new higher than ever spike of coronavirus cases in Tokyo is now leading to new concerns about the economy, along with new actions by the government. Just this week, Japanese Prime Minister Suga Yoshihide announced a third new stimulus package aimed at promoting domestic spending through the GoTo Travel Program, despite concerns that increased travel will only help spread COVID 19. Still, Japanese government leaders calculate that such risks are necessary to prevent the Japanese economy from sliding back into deflation. What was the state of the Japanese economy before the COVID 19 pandemic? How was Japan able to re inflate the economy after the stagnation of the lost decades and the 311 Tohoku triple disaster? How important was former Prime Minister Abe Shinzo in orchestrating this economic turnaround? And what economic policies can we expect from his successor, Prime Minister Suga Yoshihide? I'm Tristan Gruno, and this is Japan on the Record. For more on Japanese economic policy, I talked with Dr. Gene Park, professor and chair of political science and international relations at Loyola Marymount University. Dr. Park is the co author recently of Taming Japan's Deflation The Debate Over Unconventional Monetary Policy, published by Cornell University Press in 2018. I started by asking Dr. Park how the Japanese economy was doing prior to the COVID 19 pandemic. Well, the state of the economy overall was quite good. Japan had been at the tail end of one of its longest economic expansions since World War II, and all the indicators were really moving in the right direction. GDP per capita, that's gross domestic product per capita, which is a measure of wealth, really, saying nothing about the actual distribution of wealth, of course, was moving upwards. Japan's GDP per capita, so in other words, the proxy for its wealth, was about $46,000 per year per citizen at the start of the Abe administration at the end of 2012 and went up to about $49,000 per capita per year by the time of the COVID outbreak. Employment figures also were looking good. Unemployment had gone down significantly, it was quite low, around two point some percent. And、uh, other indicators su- suggested that people were. Joining the workforce due to these good economic conditions. So,、uh, workforce participation, in other words, the number of people that are trying to get jobs, was also increasing. Around 5 million more people entered the workforce from the start of Abe administration to the outbreak of COVID.、Uh, wages also、uh, were going up,、uh, you know, not as rapidly as some of the other indicators, but、uh, wages both for full time workers,、uh, but also part time workers or dispatch workers that are. Not permanent employees. So,、uh, again, by many indicators, it seemed that the economy was really doing quite well, at least until COVID. 
You mentioned that prior to the coronavirus pandemic, many of the economic indicators were pointing the right direction, especially when considering that Japan had the 311 triple disaster. There's been a number of challenges in the Japanese economy, and we often hear about economic stagnation and the lost decades of the early 2000s, which of course followed the bursting of the economic bubble in the mid-90s. So what was the difference? Why was the economy doing so well prior to the coronavirus pandemic? Well, I think that Prime Minister Shinzo Abe deserves a lot of the credit. And he deserves a lot of the credit because he had a clear economic agenda and he really was not afraid to put more gas on the economic accelerator, so to speak. I think one of the big contributions that he made was that he pointed out that deflation was a problem. And deflation is a situation where prices are declining rather than going up as with inflation. And by really kind of shifting thinking about what to focus on, he really, I think, was able to uh, have a clear goal and work towards overcoming deflation in order to stimulate the economy. Prior to that, one can argue that the monetary policy and other economic policymaking authorities really didn't care so much about the problem of deflation. In fact, uh, many thought that there was potentially the lingering specter of some kind of hyperinflation or that the government debt was getting too high. And uh, those views really served to really uh, make economic policymakers a lot more cautious to what extent that they could actually uh, really kind of put their pedal on this economic accelerator. So uh, to kind of sum up, I think Abe does deserve a lot of the, the credit. Now, there are different schools about what kind of ails Japan. One school has focused on uh, kind of structural problems in the Japanese economy. Many have pointed out inefficiencies in various industries, such as electricity provision, where prices tend to be high, or maybe labor market rigidity, where you know it's it's hard to kind of fire and hire workers, or maybe uh, with some kind of structural problem around certain industries being overly regulated and coddled. So that was kind of one body of thinking about what ailed the Japanese economy through the 1990s and through the first decade of the 2000s. Another school has really focused more on economic policy mistakes, where they're using the right combination of stimulus at the right time to stimulate the economy. And um, Abe really looked at both sets of problems, but I think the biggest contribution to really kind of bringing back economic growth really was in the macroeconomic policy domain. In macroeconomic policy, we mean both monetary policy and fiscal policy. Now, monetary policy is essentially trying to uh, use the lever of money. Interest rates essentially are how much money costs to borrow money, for example, you, you pay an interest rate. And so macroeconomic policymakers or monetary policy authorities manipulate that rate in order to either slow down or stimulate the economy. And then there's fiscal policy, which is really the government's other lever, main lever, which is the use of tax policy uh, and spending policy. So if a government wants to use fiscal stimulus, it can ramp up government spending, uh, which will kind of ripple through the economy. Or maybe it uses taxes, it lowers taxes, putting more money in the pockets of individuals and households, or maybe it lowers the corporate tax rate to stimulate uh, business activity. So you know, both taxation and spending can be used as an economic policy tool. So when I you know, talk about these two policy areas, fiscal and monetary policy, Really, if we had to sort of pick the one that had probably the greater lasting effect, I would argue, and my co-authors would argue, that it was the monetary policy domain that was quite impactful for the Abe administration. 
And in my book, which I co-authored with Saudi Katada, Giacomo Chiozza, and Yoshiko Kojo, we essentially argue that what Abe's main contribution was to introduce a new set of ideas about how monetary policy could be used in order to revive the economy and specifically to overcome this problem of deflation. Now, to many people who hear this, they think, okay, what's the matter with declining prices? That sounds like a great thing. But in reality, many economists have pointed out that deflation has a number of adverse economic effects. Somewhat counterintuitively, deflation can actually lower spending. You know, there's uh, several dynamics that could be at work. One is that if something is declining in price, maybe you hold off. But I think a more precise way of thinking about why deflation would lower spending is that when prices are declining, what that does is it actually boosts the real interest rate. So if you are making 2% on your savings account, but prices are now declining 2%, then your real gain is actually 4%. So that actually in a deflationary situation would give you greater incentive to save over to spend. And so uh, that is one reason that deflation is pernicious. Also, what happens is for people who hold debt, maybe you own a house, but you took out a loan to pay for that house. So you have to make payments uh, every month. Maybe you got locked in at interest rate, say, hypothetically, of 5%. Now, if your wages are going up 4% a year, the, the actual burden, uh, the actual interest rate burden is really only about 1%, the difference between the mortgage and your wage increases. But what happens in a deflationary situation when wages are declining? Then all of a sudden, the burden of repaying that debt, the burden of repaying your mortgage is much higher. So that can actually uh, also dampen demand in the economy. People have less left over to have other kinds of purchases. And I think a third really important reason why deflation can be so troublesome is the fact that monetary policy, which is usually used to affect various price increases or decreases, it becomes harder and harder to use monetary policy to either stimulate or slow down economic growth, really actually uh, to stimulate economic growth. And the reason is that uh, under conventional, what we call conventional monetary policy, the central bank, which sets uh, these interest rates, could only go and lower their interest rate, short-term interest rate, to 0%. You know, a negative interest rate at that time was considered inconceivable. Uh, but the problem, again, is that uh, if you lower the interest rate as much as you can to say 0%, but your prices are declining a lot, that 0% interest rate actually can be too high. It can be uh, too restrictive an interest rate if prices are declining. So policymakers can't really go below that so-called zero lower bound. At the time, many people thought that that was kind of a limit to how monetary policy could be used. You wouldn't be effective in a situation with declining prices. And in fact, several generations ago, John Maynard Keynes made exactly that argument and therefore argued for the use of other measures, namely fiscal policy. But you know, really in around the late 1990s and early 2000s, there was a kind of revolution in thinking about how monetary policy might be used in a situation of deflation. And what's interesting about this is that this thinking really was spurred by the case of Japan. Many people looked at Japan and said, whoa, they're in this situation of declining prices, and it seems to be going on for quite some time. But you know, by the early 2000s, Japan had been the only major economy to be in an extended period of deflation since the end of World War II. Now, some other countries had briefly been in deflation, but they were very quick spells. And so policymakers began to kind of think about the Japanese situation, 
namely including Ben Bernanke, who became the chair of the Federal Reserve, and a lot of scholarly work came out about alternative ways that monetary policy might be used to spur economic growth in a context of declining prices. And a number of concrete policies came out of this thinking, such as using negative interest rates, right? Why be held to a zero, the zero lower bound? Why not make interest rates negative? That would create a disincentive for banks to hold on to their money. And instead, they may want to just lend it out and get it out in the economy. It might create those kinds of incentives. Another very influential idea that's been used widely now, in particular since the global financial crisis, was something known as quantitative easing. And in fact, what that means is a central bank creates lots of new money because currency is a fiat currency. It's not backed by gold anymore. Governments can create as much as they want of it within certain kinds of limitations. And they would then, under this policy of quantitative easing, central banks would take that money and buy things on the market, uh, assets, stocks, bonds, and so forth. And they would affect asset prices. And the idea was that by doing so, by pushing all this money in the economy, it would ripple through the economy through a number of different channels and stimulate the economy so that central banks then could use that even in a context of deflation then to kind of overcome this so-called zero lower bound problem. Now, one of the problems in Japan was that many policymakers heard these arguments. And in fact, the Bank of Japan convened a number of conferences and invited international economists who were kind of making this argument to the central bank. But overall, the Bank of Japan was quite reluctant to experiment with those policies. There is, of course, one caveat, which um, maybe I'm going into too much detail here, was the period from about 2001 to 2006, where Japan tried a version of it, uh, of quantitative easing, but was very, very reluctant to and was forced into a political corner. And it did so in a very reluctant, kind of half-hearted way. And the, the other part of the story is that they also concluded after they used that experiment that, in fact, quantitative easing was not very effective and didn't work. Uh, so reinforcing this conventional bias, I guess, uh, against using these kinds of policy instruments. Now, other economists have looked at this some many years later, but also Ben Bernanke, I believe, and another co-author looked at it, and they actually reached the exact opposite conclusion and found that you know that period in ex experimentation with quantitative easing from 2001 to 2006 actually worked. So I think that uh, one of the problems that Japan had was that there was this strong institutional bias against trying these unconventional measured measures. And you mentioned a lot of the credit for the turnaround goes to Prime Minister Abe Shinzo. And speaking of quantitative easing in particular, I understand this was one of the three arrows of his Abenomics program. I'm curious, was he just in the right place at the right time? Or, or did he actually bring to the table an entirely new way of thinking about fiscal and monetary policy? Or in other words, now looking back on the Abe administration now that he's resigned, can we say that Abenomics was a success? That's a great question. Now, different people will say different things about that. I think that Abenomics was successful in reflating the economy, and that required, again, you know, defining the problem as deflation and doing something about it in a bold way. And it wasn't simply circumstance or luck that really kind of dictated the outcomes. It was really his ideas, particularly in the area of monetary policy. It took Prime Minister Abe to come to power and to really change the direction of monetary policy to em embrace these new unconventional monetary policies in order to fight deflation. He clearly defined deflation as a problem and took bold measures to overcome it. And I think we need a little bit of context to understand that because his party uh, at the end of 2012, when they were campaigning for the general election, which ultimately brought him to power, put overcoming deflation as one of their top 
policy priorities on their political party manifesto. Typically, monetary policy is seen outside of electoral politics. We have central banks and legislatures have delegated authority to these quasi-independent central banks to limit political influence. So Abe's party's bold statement about overcoming deflation uh, as the goal, and then also mentioning monetary policy as a tool to overcome it, really, to some extent, was somewhat controversial. And I think I don't think we've really seen any other country have a, a major party campaigning on using monetary policy to overcome deflation. But I'm just curious, is it Abe himself? Or, I mean, I imagine he has economic advisors and they're the ones who... Yes. <laughs> yes. He, that was the really the kind of... But that was him choosing these economic advisors. And so he put together a brain trust of people who essentially were not within the mainstream thinking about economic policy, uh, in particular with regards to monetary policy. Uh, there's a professor from, emeritus from Yale University, Professor uh, Hamada, who we interviewed for that book, and a number of other people who um, were really encouraging Abe to try these bolder measures. And he created his own brain trust. And in doing so, he was really attempting to short circuit the traditional channels of influence and the informal consultations that happen when you think about appointments. And so he went for you know, people that were outsiders and that some bureaucratic interests were aligned against. Uh, there was a lot of consternation on the part, for example, of the Ministry of Finance about ramping up these bold monetary type of policies. They thought, well, this could actually create all kinds of moral hazard problems. We're going to essentially be financing the government when we do this, when, when the central bank would create money and then buy Japanese government bonds, JGBs, that was is essentially the central bank financing operations of the government. And it, many people thought that that was dangerous. And it would also make it harder for there to be fiscal discipline imposed on the budget. And you know that's a big concern in Japan because Japan is the most indebted country in terms of the overall government debt as a share of GDP, the gross domestic product. Japan is the most indebted country in the world. But you know, to, to some extent, Abe thought, well, maybe that's the, the secondary priority. First, we have to reflate the economy. And so that was, again, not really the mainstream view within these policy circles. I mean, as you've been describing, Prime Minister Abe has been central to many of uh, these economic policies and this turnaround. But of course, he recently just resigned as prime minister. And, and now former chief cabinet secretary Suga Yoshihide is the new prime minister of Japan. Prime Minister Suga, upon taking office, had announced his intentions to stay the course and follow in Abe's footsteps. But still, I mean, if Abe was such a central figure, what can we expect from a Suga administration now in terms of the economy? That's a really great question. And I think it really, when thinking about it, kind of highlights how important Abe was. And he wasn't only important because of his ideas that he brought to the table. He was important also because of his leadership and his attempt to and success in centralizing policymaking in the prime minister's office. And so that allowed him to kind of steer the ship more effectively. Uh, against various conventional wisdoms, against uh, entrenched interests, uh, such as the agricultural lobby that was opposed to the Trans-Pacific Partnership originally. So his economic leadership and his centralization of authority were instrumental, I think, to him achieving his agenda. So that raises the question uh, that you pose, which is, so how will Prime Minister Suga fare now that he's prime minister? Right now, at least from a policy perspective, it seems like he will stay the course, as he suggested. And he's indicated that publicly. He's mentioned that he backs 
the current monetary policy course of the Bank of Japan, and he backs the current governor, Haruhiko Kuroda. And so uh, it looks like there will be some degree of stability there. But even so, even though Prime Minister Suga is saying that he wants to keep the same monetary policy course, it also depends on what the Bank of Japan wants to do. And we can't forget that. During Prime Minister Abe's reign, the Bank of Japan was in lockstep with the Abe administration. He appointed every single person on this you know, quasi-independent policymaking board. So uh, they uh, were very much aligned. Now, Prime Minister Suga is stepping in, and one question that I think will emerge is to what extent will the policymakers at the Bank of Japan uh, potentially either stay the course or shift the course depending on what they think they can get away with, with the new prime minister. So um, we don't really know uh, the answer to that question. And it's something to kind of look for. Will they be as comfortable, right, keeping their foot on the accelerator as much as they have? Many people think that there are some real risks there, and we can talk about that if there's time for it. Now, with regard to fiscal policy, it's hard to get a read. And in some ways, he seems like he's pushing for fiscal stimulus now that COVID is really kind of bringing the economy uh, to its knees. And so he's indicated that he's going to push through a big spending package, another supplementary budget for this fiscal year. Uh, but at the same time, prior to becoming prime minister, he had mentioned that he was also in support of raising the consumption tax even more. But then there was such a sort of backlash against that, he quickly backed off that statement. There is a lot of, it's kind of like a parlor game of kind of reading the tea leaves, you know, who's influential within the policymaking orders of power. Is you know, one ministry up or is another ministry down? And so there's been some talk of how METI, the Ministry of Economy, Trade and Industry, which was very influential under Prime Minister Abe, uh, maybe becoming less influential. And others have argued that perhaps the Ministry of Finance, which tends to be a little more conservative about using fiscal policy, uh, may be ascendant. But again, it's, it's probably too early to tell. There are some interesting ways, though, I think, in which COVID is interacting with the new Suga administration. And we're going to see some new types of policies kind of coming out as well. Uh, he's really pushing for digitization, which uh, the government has really kind of attempted to promote digitization throughout the economy and also throughout government as well. And it's been kind of underway for a very long time, uh, indicating how slow moving that program has been. But I think that Suga has indicated that he's going to put a real priority on that. There are some uh, new ideas coming around about supply chain diversification so that Japanese manufacturers are less reliant on uh, supply chains from China. And again, this really started with COVID and started under Abe, but it looks like the Suga administration is going to try to move this in some new interesting directions. We have to kind of wait and see. But ultimately, though, I think that we'll have to see how long Prime Minister Suga stays Prime Minister. Many people thought that he would call a snap election uh, right after he became Prime Minister to get that stamp of approval and win public support. His public numbers are actually quite high now, but he's decided, it looks like, to postpone an election until next year. He has until October 2021 to call an election. And we'll have to see if he is just a short-term prime minister or if he's uh, here to stay or if he's going to face challengers or whether he's going to be the one to really tighten his control over political power. I'm Tristan Gruno, visiting assistant professor of modern Japanese history at Pacific University. And this has been another episode of Japan on the Record. Stay tuned for future episodes to hear scholars of Japan bring their expertise to bear on issues in the news. Thank you for listening.